0: By way of quick recap of last week, last week we tackled chapter 3. We looked at elder and deacon qualifications. Paul is describing the sort of man that the church should give authority to in the church. Um, and how we, t- we looked at how the qualifications are about godly character. And this character is proven over time and matches the profession of faith. Um, and then we had Paul's purpose statement in writing this epistle uh, in verses 14 through 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So his purpose is writing to the church in Ephesus here and Timothy, that they may know how to behave in the household of God, how to behave with one another in the church. And so we see the rest of this letter is focused on these practical exhortations of how do we live together in the church. And then he describes the church as uh, this buttress of the truth. The church is to maintain the truth of the gospel, um, and that the gospel is all about Christ himself. And so in verse 16 at the end of the chapter, we had this early hymn or creedal statement about the person and work of Christ. All right, so then picking up in chapter 4, we're going to take this in chunks. So Let's tackle uh, verses 1 through 5 first. and prayer. So we get this, um, this warning here at the beginning, uh, and we have like a kind of a who and a when and a what in verse 1. Uh, this warning is coming from the Spirit, so the Spirit has revealed this to Paul as an apostle, uh, that in the later times, that's the when, and this is the time after Christ's ascension and before his second coming. So this is not referring to um, some remote future date, but to an impending crisis in the church that is happening now. And the what is that some will depart from the faith. So some in the visible church will commit apostasy, and they'll walk away. Uh, we talked before in this class about assurance of salvation, that a believer cannot lose their salvation. Scripture is very clear on this. John ten twenty seven to 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then John 17, 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And we have verses like Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, uh, where Paul describes that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we have this electing purpose of God. Uh, But we know that the visible church is made up of both the elect and the non-elect, And so, as the Confession says, it's made up of those who profess faith and their children. And so, that profession can change, which reveals some in the church uh, to be non-elect. We know that perseverance is a mark of a true believer, which is what 1 John 2 says, uh, verses 18 through 19. It says, "'Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour.'" They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that not all are of us. Right, so we see this going out as a mark of them not actually being part of the, the true, the invisible church. Now, it's also possible for a believer to, part, to, to depart for some time, but they will come back because this is kind of remaining with the church is a mark of perseverance of the saints. Um, and Dennis pointed out several weeks ago uh, that God uses warnings. So this is a warning for us. God uses warnings for the perseverance of the saints. Uh, that the true believer trembles at the threatenings, as the Westminster Confession on saving faith says in chapter fourteen. That that is a mark of real faith. So then, how does this apostasy reveal itself? Reveals itself by these uh, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So Paul is getting back to false teaching. We talked about this a lot in chapter 1, how this epistle is focused on false teaching and the danger of it. And here again is a reminder of why this is such a big deal. Uh, And this is a warning for Timothy in the Ephesian church, and it's a warning for the church of all ages um, and we had some of the content of that false teaching in chapter 1, and Paul is going to go into more detail here in these verses. But Before we talk about the content in chapter 3, um, I want to pause for a minute and talk about this demonic influence that he mentions. False teaching is not just you know, the silly whims of some individual. It's actually fueled by demonic activity. Uh, we see this elsewhere in Scripture as well. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Um, Ephesians 6.12, he's talking about putting on the full armor of God, the spiritual warfare that we have. And he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I think what Paul is describing in First Timothy is that Uh, Demons are using these false teachers to attack the church and to keep the lost in unbelief. And this is actually not something that's new to the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well, that this Old Testament idolatry was the work of demons. There's a very interesting passage in Leviticus 17, and it's describing how the people of Israel, when they come into the land, they must only sacrifice at the tabernacle. They're not to follow the practices of the pagan nations and sacrificing anywhere The pagan nations would have shrines kind of on hillsides all over the place, just dotted the countryside. Um, And the Lord is very clear that they are not to do that because there's demons behind this pagan idolatry. And so the end of this paragraph here in Leviticus 17 says this, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations, right? And they're avoiding that by sacrificing only in the tabernacle to the Lord explicitly, we also see the idea of these deceitful spirits that, uh, t- that Paul mentioned in 1 Timothy in the Old Testament as well. Um, a classic example of this is the end of the life of Ahab uh, in 1 Kings 22. There's one true prophet of the Lord, uh, and Ahab hates him, right? Because he says, he always, he always gives me the news I don't want to hear, essentially. I'm forgetting the exact language. He's got all these prophets telling him, go, go up to, to fight the Syrians. Um, and Micaiah says differently— And it picks up in verse 21. Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him. You shall succeed. Go out and do so. So we know also Satan is the father of lies. So in some sense, anything that is not of truth comes from him and from his minions. And Paul uh, describes these false teachers who are spouting this, uh, these lies, this demonic distortion of the truth, as liars in verse 2. And so they're, in some sense, acting like their father, the devil, as Christ described the Jews in John eight forty four. He said, "You're of the father, of your father, the devil. You're not of God." And so that is true of these who are who are uh, distorting the truth, and speaking lies, false prophets, false teachers instead. And one mark of these is that their consciences are seared. Their consciences are seared. So in, in chapter one, Paul described they've rejected the good conscience. Um, And I think searing here indicates that this individual has willfully and habitually uh, broken the law in this repeated fashion so that the conscience eventually ceases to function, right? It ceases to produce the twinge of conscience that we should feel uh, to warn them of error. And so they become completely amoral. And the apostolic teaching, by contrast, as Paul said in uh, chapter 1, produces a good conscience, which is a tender conscience, one that is sensitive to sin, Uh, which is informed by the word of God. So we have this contrast in conscience here. So that was covering false teachers themselves and this demonic activity. And now in verse three, Paul is going to move on to the content of the teaching. So the content uh, is forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So this is, the idea of asceticism, uh, we see this in multiple places in the New Testament. Uh, generally, the idea is that the, kind of the natural physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good, and there's some spiritual benefit that accrues by kind of cutting off the natural world, um, focusing exclusively on the spiritual, kind of denying the self. Um, so celibacy is better than marriage. He, he, he uh, highlights marriage here. Certain foods are bad. It's good to abstain from foods, uh, avoid pleasure, We see Paul elsewhere dealing with this, uh, the church in Colossae, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. It really starts earlier than this, but I'm going to read 20 through 23. He says this, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul's saying this ascetic teaching is of human origin, it's not from God, and it's completely powerless in actually creating true holiness in us, which is sort of the purported goal. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing a letter that the Corinthian church wrote to him. And so he's quoting this uh, statement in their letter in 7.1. Uh, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Right? That's the ascetic argument. And Paul's response is, of course, no, it's not. right. If, uh, if you burn with, with uh, passion, it's better to be married. It's not better to remain celibate just for celibacy's sake. He, he says, of course, singleness is fantastic. He wants everyone to have this undivided devotion to the Lord that you can have if you're single, uh, but it's not morally superior to abstain from marriage. Um, and if you are inclined to that way, or you have sexual desires, then you should pursue marriage. So this is coming against this ascetic argument. And Calvin said something I thought was very insightful about asceticism in his commentary. And he said that it actually strikes at the true worship of God. And the idea is this. So this false teaching is essentially telling us how God should be worshiped. And it's saying we worship God by self-denial rather than in the way that he has actually instituted in his word. And so it perverts the worship of God for of a man-made version, that the ascetic is trying to please God on his own terms rather than on God's terms. Um, And part of that is the fact that God has made good gifts for us to enjoy. And so rather than giving thanks to God and praising him for these good gifts, the ascetic does not glorify God by abstaining from him he's not partaking in these gifts that God has ordained from him and then offering God the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise that he's due instead he's he's kind of refusing to do so um, we see this kind of pointedly here in verse three where Paul or yeah Paul says explicitly that they are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth um, so there's this sense that God uh, blesses right? There's this common grace, right? So he blesses all um, with material blessings, and yet only his children are the inheritors of the earth. Everything good is made truly for the child of God and for his children's enjoyment, even in a way that is kind of above and beyond the unbeliever. And so as a child of God, then we should take special delight and enjoyment in the good things that God gives us as being tailor-made for us from his hand, And the way we show appreciation to God is by thanking him for it and praising him for it. And so asceticism actually robs God of that praise uh, because we refuse to enjoy those gifts and then thank God for them. Another thing Calvin said, and I'm gonna read this quote here, is that uh, people, people fail to keep God's law and then rather than resting in Christ, they replace God's law with their own as a way to kind of you know, maybe it's motivated by guilt, but it's a way to uh, regain some sense of their own righteousness. It's kind of a, a human works-based righteousness. And he says this, These prohibitions have their origin in the hypocrisy that abandons true holiness and then looks for something else to hide behind. People who do not abstain from self-seeking, hatred, avarice, cruelty, and similar things try to attain a righteousness for themselves, by abstaining from those things which God had not forbidden, only hypocrites do this, so that they can sin with impunity against that inner righteousness that the law requires. They conceal their inner wickedness in these outward observances, which they drape over themselves like veils. I thought that was such an apt description of what the Pharisees did. This is exactly what they did, right? Creating their own laws and then keeping those, um, and failing, uh, failing to keep God's law, right and we see that in Matthew 23, when Christ is describing these or pronouncing these woes against the Pharisees, um, it's full of this kind of attitude. And I think we all have some tendency to do the same. And we think we do well in one area, and we're not so good in another. And so in our own minds, we kind of tend to, you know, this one's more important because this is what I do well. And the other one's not as important because I don't do so well in that area. And then we can go around and judge others and feel good about ourselves because we're really good at this one thing. And I think, you know, thinking about our society, our society is full of this kind of attitude of replacing God's law with our own own moral code that we come up with, and then everyone uh, runs around judging everyone, hating everyone who uh, doesn't live up to their own moral code. So Paul's rebuttal here to this false teaching is verse 4, everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. So Paul is going right back to Genesis. He's going right back to creation. Do you remember what God says after each day of creation? What does he say? It is good. It is good. It is good. So asceticism is proclaiming to be evil what God has proclaimed to be good. And Paul goes back to creation to prove them wrong. Um, he's saying God created food. God created marriage. He created these things for us to enjoy. And it is wrong to ban their use. And then, uh, nothing is to be rejected if it, if it is received by, with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. So all, uh, all food is permissible to the believer, as Christ made plain. Think of the, the ceremonial law had these certain restrictions. Um, those have been abrogated. We see this in Mark 7, 18 through 20. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside Cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, And he said, "What comes out of a person is what defiles him. We also see Peter's vision in Acts 10 when he's in Joppa, uh, and he's up on the roof there at the house of Simon the tanner, um, and he goes into this trance, and the sheet comes down with all sorts of animals, unclean animals in it. And verse 13, and there came a voice to him, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So we no longer have restrictions on food. And so the attitude with which we enjoy the world around us is what matters. And that is what makes the partaking in a thing, good or bad, uh, not the thing itself, assuming it is actually a lawful thing to enjoy. And Paul highlights prayer as well, um, how important prayer it is that we should receive it with thanksgiving, which is what consecrates it for proper use. So I think we act in faith uh, when we bring even common affairs to God in prayer. And I was, as I was studying this, I was reflecting back you know, my own family, we would pray before meals. I think that's a a fantastic example of this very thing. It's a very common thing. We eat multiple times a day every day, but our food is from God, and so it's completely appropriate for us to remember that and thank him for it when we sit down to eat, that everything we have is a gift from his hand. And then uh, finally, wrapping up this section on asceticism, uh, it kind of poses the question, I think, of where our holiness comes from. So the ascetic view implicitly states that we accrue holiness from self-denial. That's what it's saying, is that this is how we please God. And so asceticism very much strays into legalism and a works-based righteousness and ultimately denies the gospel because it's elevating elevating man's law above God's law and emphasizing human achievement of holiness instead of resting in Christ's work. But we know that our holiness is in Christ alone. That's where it is found. And so... We do need to die to sin and self. Right? I want to point that out. There is an essence of self-denial in the Christian life, but it is in accord with God's word, not outside of God's word. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? so doing any activity here is holy. It's uh, set apart or consecrated if it's done to the glory of God. And the attitude with which we do it is what is critical Let's move on to the next section. I will read uh, verses. We're going to take uh, 6 through 10 and then 11 through 16. But I want to talk about uh, structure here for a minute because it's very interesting what Paul does with the rest of the chapter here in terms of structure. So 1 Timothy 4.6 says, If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine, you have followed. So 4, 6, he's saying, teach, put these, things, put these things before the brothers, teach these things, and then train yourself, be trained in, uh, the, in the words of the faith and the good doctrine, be trained in godliness. And then uh, 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So he's, he's saying again, teach the flock, More strongly, command and teach these things, and then set an example for them. So the first one is be trained in godliness yourself, and then the second paragraph is be an example to the flock. So, in order to be the example, Timothy first has to be trained in godliness for himself. That sequence matters. Uh, There's an emphasis here on teaching that we see in uh, 6 and 11. The beginning of each of these paragraphs is a reminder to Timothy to teach, uh, to teach the flock of God. Put these things before the brothers command and teach these things. Um, And that emphasizes the fact that this is how we fight error, the error of one through five. We fight it with the truth. So Paul's urging Timothy to repeatedly teach the truth to the congregation. That's how he can fortify them against this error of false teaching. And we need repetition. Uh, We're apt to forget. Uh, Calvin said a wise pastor emphasizes core truths over and over again, and the saints should not get tired of hearing them because we should know." and humility that we actually need it, that we are prone to forget. Uh, in Scripture, we see the, this call to repetition uh, elsewhere as well. Second Peter 1, 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. He's saying, you know them, but I'm going to remind you of them anyway. And then three one. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Paul does this in other of his letters as well. Deuteronomy 8 is a classic chapter in this regard. Moses speaking to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land, telling them to remember God. And we see this uh, remember or do not forget pattern all throughout the chapter. Uh, Verse 2, you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you. 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. 18, you shall remember the Lord your God. 19, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods. So again and again, there's this repetition here. So Paul, likewise, is exhorting Timothy multiple times to do what he has been called to do, which is to teach the full counsel of God uh, to his flock. And he says, if you do so, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And I thought, this speaks to who is the minister ultimately serving and who should the minister aim to please? And the answer is Christ Christ is who the minister is, is to please, uh, not the congregation per se, right? which is kind of where the rub comes in. So uh, the minister has to be concerned to please Christ rather than to be concerned with the praises of men. Um, and the minister's goal ultimately is not to please the congregation that he serves, even though he is serving for their good, because that can lead down a deadly path for both the minister and his hearers. Second uh, Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so the minister is actually called to speak the full counsel of God, which includes things that people do not want to hear oftentimes. So looking at the, the rest of this paragraph here, six through ten. We'll read six again. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. All right, so I want you to see that the thrust of this passage is very much on godly training. That is the emphasis here. That word or the equivalent appears four times in these verses uh, in six, in seven, in eight, and in ten with toil and strive. So there's this emphasis on uh, training, training for godliness. And then in the middle of the passage, passage, there's an escalation in value that we see. So uh, Paul describes these silly myths in verse seven. Uh, so those have no value. And he describes bodily training, which has some value, and then he caps it off with training and godliness, which has great value. So the silly myths, they do not edify anyone as we've seen. They're worthless. Uh, he says bodily training has some limited value. It's useful in this life. Uh, I think he was probably thinking of the athletes who compete in the games um, but I was thinking on this that it's worth pointing out, we're going to talk about godliness as the great value, but it's worth pointing out that there is actually some value to personal training, right? That we are stewards of the bodies that give, God has given us, of all the resources he's given us. And so we should actually take care of those bodies. And so some physical training is of value in that regard for, for physical health and fitness, there, there is, you know, there's, some, there's goodness to the physical world, right, against the live of asceticism, um, so we should take care of our bodies. But godliness holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. And in terms of promise for the present life, he's saying that godliness actually improves our present life. I thought um, it's interesting to think of it in these terms. But do you want your best life now? right? If you want your best life now, you should pursue godliness. That's what Paul is saying here, and it's, it's a completely uh, true thing, right? Godliness helps us to avoid the immediate consequences of sin. Sin causes much of the, of the uh, misery and unhappiness our, in our own lives, uh, so godliness helps with that, right? Uh, it helps us go through suffering with an eternal perspective and with real joy. It helps us to be content to live peaceful and quiet lives, Right? It makes us better friends, better spouses, um, better uh, employees and managers, better neighbors, better citizens. Uh, godliness will help you to live your best life now, right? even though that's not our end goal. Our end goal is uh, heaven, of course, and that's where we are citizens. So that's where Paul goes next. I mean, he's emphasizing uh, the promise for the life to come. And I think that is this contrast between the temporality of physical training, that it's got a short window in which it's useful, Um, but there's this eternal nature of holiness that holiness will endure forever. And so that should be the primary focus of our lives because God is holy and only that which is holy will continue in the presence of the Lord. It's actually for this purpose that we've been called Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. We've we've read that a couple times in this class. It says God has, uh, has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy. This is the purpose, that we might be blameless before him. So godliness helps us to be as happy as we can be in the present life, but it's not fully realized until the life to come. And Paul is describing that the full realization and the value and effect of godliness will be experienced in the life to come and that we start pursuing that blessing now. And then we have this eternal mindset because our hope is set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And this last clause here sounds a little bit confusing when it says, especially those who believe. Probably a better translation would be, in other words, or specifically, those who believe. I'm saying those who believe are the ones who are saved. In um, the context for this, we've talked about this a little bit earlier, but that Jews of this time period and the false teachers uh, believe that Messiah and salvation was just for them, right? So this inclusive language that we see of the apostles is countering that mindset, revealing the mystery, that the gospel is for all Jew and Gentile. And so there is still a distinction between saved and unsaved, but what Paul is describing here is that distinction is not Jew and Gentile. The distinction is those who believe versus those who do not. So, how do we train ourselves for godliness? Paul's focused on this idea of training. Training su- uh, suggests discipline and rigor, it takes effort, it takes discipline. Uh, There's some skill to it. It's toil and, and, uh, he says, toil and strive. So the reality is that fighting sin is hard work, right? This is a a lesson for us that holiness is not easy. It does not come naturally. What comes naturally is sinning. We are by nature lovers of self, not lovers of God. And so we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Romans 12, 2 says. And that transformation happens through the spiritual disciplines, This is why it's critical for you to be here in worship week in and week out. Every week, you should delight to come and worship. God God uses corporate worship to change us, to shape us, to reorient our hearts, to shape our uh, perspectives, to give us an eternal mindset so that we long for heaven. Now, worship is for God as well. We come ultimately to worship him, uh, not to be served ourselves per se, but God uses it. He does bless us uh, tremendously as we come and worship together. Uh, The word, our own study of the word, uh, personal meditation on it. We need to be in the word daily. The word is absolutely critical for this process. Um, And then prayer as well. Paul was emphasizing prayer in chapter two. We talked about that, how critical prayer is in the life of the believer. So only God can change the heart, right? God is the one who sanctifies us. But in sanctification, we have this This dual work, right, that God works and we work, there's this participation that we have in it. All right, in the back, the the last part of chapter four here, looking at how Timothy is to be an example to the flock. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul is emphasizing the importance of Timothy's personal conduct here, that his life is to be exemplary, it is to be worthy of emulation by the church there in Ephesus. Matthew Henry said very aptly, those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life, else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other. That is so true. Philippians 4, Paul says, "Whatever whatever you have seen in me put into practice. That is a bold statement. That is something that we should aspire to. Um, and the scope of this that Paul gives Timothy in verse 4. I'm sorry, I don't have it highlighted here. Um, If you look at verse 12, I should go back, Uh, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, that's everything. He's encompassing all of life here. Uh, We are to be above reproach, as he describes in the elder qualifications. And so Timothy is to have this devotion to the ministry as part of that. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And that begins with devotion to the Scripture. The Word is put forth here. He he lists these multiple ways that the Word is put forth. Uh, Reading of Scripture, exhortation, which is preaching, and teaching, instruction in the doctrines of the faith. Uh, This teaching is of, of utmost importance for the good of the church. It is the minister's primary calling We have this contrast here again between the false teacher and the true minister and what they are devoted to. The false minister is devoted to these myths, uh, the genealogies and speculation. And the true minister of God here is devoted to the word. Uh, The word is our source of truth. We are to be a people of the book. So Timothy is to be devoted to the word. And then verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have. Uh, Do not neglect the gift you have. In 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul tells Timothy to fan it into flame, to use it. Uh, we talked about um, Timothy's uh, gift in this section a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago. And the, the, the purpose of the gifts is for the good of others. Right? We are to be serving the church. And so if Timothy is not using his gift, it's actually to the detriment of the body. Uh, Timothy apparently needed some encouragement because Paul tells him multiple times to use it. Uh, one of the commentators, Jeffrey Wilson, said the gift is not a magical endowment which works without the cooperation of its recipient, right? He's saying it actually takes the person to whom the gift has been given for it to be used for good in the life of the body. Calvin described that a gift can become rusty. I thought that was such a potent image that the gifts actually, in some sense, become better with practice, become better with use. They must be used to bless the body. And so we should be a people that, Delights to serve, the delights to be used, however God would use us. Timothy is to to practice these things, uh, going along with that idea idea of using the gift. uh, Immerse yourself in them. Uh, Immerse yourself. Living biblical Christianity is all-encompassing. It's not something that we just tack on to our existing lives. It has to be core to who we are. And so Timothy must be completely dedicated to the word and to the work of the ministry. Matthew Henry said this, Ministers are to be much in meditation. They are to consider beforehand how and what they must speak. They are to meditate on the great trust committed to them, on the worth and value of immortal souls, and on the account they must give at the last. So they're fully dedicated to this work. They're meditating on it. Um, it, it's It's core to their lives. And that dedication will be observed by the flock, and that's actually a good thing. Paul says, so that all may see your progress. All may see your progress. There's a positive element to actually seeing one another's sanctification. It's actually encouraging and a good thing to see each other grow in maturity, to grow in the faith. Calvin thought this referred to the effect of the ministry on the church, not necessarily personal sanctification, that all would see the growth of the Ephesian church through the ministry of the word. I think that they're both valid and true, that we grow individually And we also grow then corporately in maturity. All right, and then the last verse here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. All right, so keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Paul is highlighting here that we need to be vigilant against uh, sinful thoughts and actions and inclinations in our own hearts. And then uh, as a minister, Timothy needs to be careful to teach in accordance with the word, and not to stray into speculation or heresy, to stick to the word. Um, and both of those are necessary. Uh, think of that Matthew Henry quote before, that the life and the teaching have to go together, uh, that good teaching is spoiled by scandal, and an upright lifestyle is worthless if one is teaching heresy. Maintaining that purity of doctrine and purity of life, though, requires constant effort. This is, kind of gets back to the idea of training, of the toil uh, and the striving that are required. It's like keeping a garden free of weeds, right? If any of you have gardens or landscaped beds, the weeds just keep coming back. It's so frustrating, right? You have to go out and weed them again and again and again and again and again. Um, And the human heart is similar, right? We are steeped in sin. The old man uh, is still in us and the old man dies hard. He doesn't go away very easily. Uh, No one falls into a lifestyle of godliness. It takes work and it takes effort. So this vigilance is necessary. But Paul gives Timothy a great reason for this vigilance, a reason for this work. He says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So save yourself. Paul isn't saying, he's not talking about justification explicitly. He's not saying that uh, maintaining accurate theology and avoiding egregious sin uh, till the end of your life is what is going to justify you. He's describing uh, perseverance of the saints, like we talked about before, that those who continue in the faith, who continue in the good doctrine, confirm their election, whereas those who fall away, like the false teachers, show that though part of the the visible church. They were never part of the invisible church. And so that's true for uh, Timothy and his hearers. And I think on the Savior hearers as well, uh, it's true that God uses faithful preaching of the word for the salvation of the lost. We think of Romans ten fourteen through 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Timothy's faithful preaching of the word is what God will use for the salvation of the lost in Ephesus. Um, Calvin pointed out that the, that the minister has to be devoted to the salvation of the flock. That is the chief aim and, and his goal. That is why he labors. And he said this I thought this was a great quote Nor should it seem strange that Paul ascribes to Timothy the work of saving the church. For all that are won for God are saved, and it is by the preaching of the gospel that we are gathered to Christ. And just as the unfaithfulness or negligence of a pastor is fatal to the church, so it is right for its salvation to be ascribed to his faithfulness and diligence. It is indeed true that it is God alone who saves, and not even the smallest part of his glory can be rightly transferred to men. But God's glory is in no way diminished by his using the labor of men in bestowing salvation. So our salvation is God's gift as it comes from him alone, And only his power can bring it about. God alone is the author of salvation. But this does not exclude the ministry of men, for the well-being of the church depends on that ministry. So God is the author and the finisher of our faith. But he uses means, especially ministers, pastors in the church. And so this should be a great encouragement to the minister, to the full-time servant of the word, to persevere in that work and to do it with excellence, because that is what God uses for the good of his people, for the salvation of the lost. So that's going to wrap us up with chapter four. And we'll use our remaining time to start into chapter five. All right, chapter five is starting a new section. My voice to last another 10 minutes here. Of how we, how we treat specific groups within the body, how we interact with one another within the church. He's going to talk about showing honor to others in the church. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, he's talking about church members generally, and he uh, calls out the elderly specifically. Um, And then uh, 3 through 16, talking about widows. So we'll try and tackle those first two today, and then we'll pick up with ministers next week. Uh, So ministers, officers, 17 through 25, and then slaves and masters gets into chapter 6. Let's look at 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So this respectful uh, dealing with one another as church members, I want to point out this familial language that he uses. Um, The older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, mothers, sisters, that we are to treat each other in the church as family in some respect. We're to have that kind of affection and regard for one another. We're to show respect to one another. And so he's, he's saying here, we honor the aged and the elderly by treating them with special gentleness, just like you would treat your own elderly parent, for instance. Like that's the kind of gentleness that we should have with one another. Um, we are to be encouragers to each other rather than, than being harsh with one another. Um, and Paul isn't saying here that we never rebuke one another when he's talking about encouragement. But I think he's speaking to the manner in which it is done that we're to do it with gentleness and tenderness, with love for one another. Uh, Part of this exhortation uh, must be um, exhortation toward holiness uh, and cautioning against sin. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12-13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." So we are to have hard conversations with one another um, at times, to warn each other against the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, But there's this um, love and affection and gentleness that should be part of that effort. And then um, Paul adds this extra clause in regard to the younger women. He says, in all purity. I think that's for uh, Timothy's protection and for the protection of all officers, right? That we need to be especially careful with the way that we interact with uh, younger women, because nothing will ruin a ministry faster than uh, a minister's improper conduct or even perceived improper conduct towards younger women uh, in the flock. Right? We need to avoid even the appearance of evil. And then uh, 3 through 16, Paul's going to describe care for widows by the church. Well, let's read this section. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren. Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions uh, draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation, ...for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. All right, so Paul's describing care for widows in the church. Uh, caring for widows was something that the church took up from its earliest days. Uh, this practice actually occasioned the institution of the office of deacon in Acts 6. We have this principle of caring for the destitute that we see in James one uh, twenty-seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, So we have this principle of caring for the destitute, but there's wisdom in how that principle is applied. Hence, we have Paul's practical instructions here and qualifications for support of the needy widows in this passage. So Paul gives us a number of requirements here. Um, He says, uh, requirements for the widow to come under financial care of the church. He says, first, Truly a widow. She says in verse three. He says it in verse, three, it in verse uh, five as well. So no other family around is what he's saying, right? If there are children or grandchildren that are grown, they should provide for their mother or grandmother's needs, not the church. Um, and he's very strong on this. Uh, looking at the the other verses in this paragraph, um, that failing to do so is a violation of the fifth commandment. F- f- uh, f- uh, family failing to care for a widowed mother is a violation of the fifth commandment. And he says in verse eight that neglecting this responsibility is tantamount to a denial of the faith. It's very, very strong. It's evidence of a serious lack of the fruits of repentance unto life because it so brazenly breaks God's law here. Um, this also uh, is the principle, creates the principle, that family has the first responsibility to care for the needy in society. We're to care for our own needy family members. And then the church comes in. Church is kind of that second tier there. They come in where the family is lacking. So the widow needs to be truly a widow. Uh, then uh, verse 5, uh, she has set her hope on God. Right? So she's uh, trusting God. She's entrusted herself to him, especially in the absence of other support here. Uh, she's a godly believer. She has this undivided devotion to the Lord that Paul describes in First Corinthians 7. And we see real uh, fruit of her hope in God demonstrated in her prayer life. So she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She knows God. She communes with him continually. It uh, makes me think of the example of Anna in Luke 2. Many of you are probably familiar with Anna. The widow, uh, Widowed and then uh, worshipped and prayed in the tabernacle night and day. So we have this uh, godly widow who's, who has no family uh, and is also... Um, elderly. So age 60, we see in verse 9. Um, anyone under the age of 60 uh, should be capable of remarrying or providing for her own needs of working. Uh, wife of one husband, in verse 9. Uh, this is actually the same phrase used in chapter 3 in the qualifications for elders and deacons, except now it's applied to the godly widows. Uh, so this refers to marital fidelity. It's not a requirement that they've only been married once. And then verse 10, this reputation for good works. Uh, Brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, uh, has devoted herself to every good work. The picture is one who has fulfilled her calling as a wife, as a mother, as a member of the church, caring for the, the needs of others in each of these spheres. And now the church cares for her in her time of need. So those are the requirements And then Paul actually specifically calls out some who should not be included in verses 11 through 15. And those are younger widows, so those under the age of uh, 60. And the reason he gives uh, is that um, their passions may draw them away from Christ, and they may uh, learn to be idlers and gossips and busybodies. So I think what Paul is getting at here is this. Uh, If a widow uh, receives full-time support, then she's not working. Um, If she's a younger widow here, she might not have children, uh, which means that she's got a lot of time on her hands. Um, And it's not good for anyone to be idle and to have a lot of time on our hands. Temptation to sin can abound. We actually do best when we have real responsibilities uh, to attend to. And so this might be especially a problem for younger, less mature widows. So Paul is highlighting here gossip and the temptation to marry outside the church as dangers of this. Um, Younger widows who don't need to remarry for financial support uh, may nevertheless eventually be tempted to marry an unbeliever due to passions and led away from the faith. Um, In this time period, it was customary for a wife to assume the religion of her husband, and so if she marries—we're never to marry outside the Lord, but uh, if she marries outside the Lord and assumes the the religion of her husband And that's this abandoning her former faith that Paul is talking about. Uh, Paul is, of course, not condemning uh, remarriage. He says that's actually what they should do in verse 14. He's concerned with marrying in the Lord and living upright lives. So younger widows, instead of coming under the care of the church, he's saying they should marry, they should have children, they should fulfill their calling, including caring for older widows in their own families. So this passage uh, describes destitute widows without family who are over 60, and then all others are presumed capable of remarrying or being cared for by their own families so that the church is not burdened, and the church should care for those who are truly destitute. And as we wrap up here, I want to jump back to verse 6, because Paul says something very striking, and I skipped over it uh, for the sake of laying out the qualifications in order. So he's contrasting the godly widow with one who is self-indulgent. And he says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead, is dead even while she lives. She is dead even while she lives. So self-indulgence is this uh, self-centered life, living for ourself, living for pleasure. Uh, This comes very naturally to us as sinners. Uh, And I think in our society particularly, this is a problem that we have a very therapeutic society and holds force the, this lie that, uh, you're only really living if you are indulging yourself to the max, right? Whatever passion or impulse crosses your mind, that's what it means to be a self-actualized person, right? Um, and so it's in many ways, it's the mantra of our age that it's bad to stifle your self-expression. Um, and the advice that we receive is about it as well. Uh, self-care, right? Take care of yourself. Um, that's necessary in some cases, but I think can be easily um, used as an excuse for self-indulgence. You know, believe in yourself, avoid low self-esteem. Uh, the reality is that looking out for number one and thinking highly of ourselves is our default. That's very easy for us. It comes naturally to us. Uh, but Paul says that one who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so this self-indulgence is reflective of a state of uh, spiritual deadness. There's no spiritual fruit um, in this person if they are marked by self-indulgence. Um, and I think the reality is that even in this life, living for self doesn't lead to happiness and fulfillment. Right? We see this in us. Uh, if you, you look at celebrities, right? how many celebrities are like, is this all there is to life? You know, They're completely unfulfilled, even though we would think they have everything, they have every reason to be happy. The reality is that the more selfish The more myopic we become, the less happy we actually are. So Christ's words ring true, right? Whoever desires uh, to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. It is actually the life of selflessness and service that is paradoxically the fruitful and the fulfilling life. And so Paul's exhortation to us, and I want to close with this, is that we should be encouraged to lean into our God-given responsibilities rather than wishing we could shirk them. I have the tendency to do this sometimes, to just wish, you know what, I've got a lot of responsibilities. It would be great if I could just set them aside. But that's not what we're called to. Um, Paul is saying here, in doing this, in embracing the responsibilities we've been given, we will bear much fruit and we will find fulfillment in living according to God's call to us. All right, we'll stop there. Thank you. Let me pray for us, and we'll go to the next service. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this epistle. We do pray, Lord, that you give us grace uh, to be disciplined, to grow in godliness, uh, to fight sin, to fight uh, self-indulgence, to embrace the responsibilities you have given us. Um, We thank you for um, the great example you have given us in Christ himself. Thank you again for the reminder of the resurrection I pray that we would go forth and worship you in joy, knowing how much you have done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.